0: Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Richard Quinn, the CIO and founder of Bentham Asset Management, a global credit investor with more than $10 billion of funds under management that they've built since rolling out of Credit Suisse back in 2010. We have a great conversation about his outlook of markets, The asset class of credit that many investors aren't that familiar with. We also talk about their recent investment into some Qantas credit. Please remember that this podcast isn't designed nor is it specific advice or an advice recommendation. We encourage all people to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. Please keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. I hope you enjoy this episode. Richard, welcome to Inside the Road. Thank you. Thanks very much. Interested to be here. Richard, it would be great for the benefit of our listeners if you could give us a bit of uh, who you are and your background, please.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, My name's Richard Quinn. I'm the the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of uh, uh, Bentham Asset Management, which is uh, a global uh, capital markets investor. That means we buy, uh, credit investments and fixed interest investments all around the world. Um, yeah, that's uh my, uh my company's been going for 10 years now since we spun out of uh, Credit Swiss uh, with a small team. We sort of spun out with three people and we now have 14 people in the team uh, and we run lots of different types of credit investment portfolios, predominantly for Australian investors, but we now have some overseas investors as well.
0: Thanks, Richard. Can you give us a little bit of, uh, as to your background, you just talked a little bit there about, maybe you can also give us a bit of your background experience in markets, and then also you alluded to spinning out the team from Credit Suisse. Maybe you can also talk to why you did that.
1: Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, yeah, so I, like I started off, I, originally I'm from Adelaide. Um, I did a business degree, and then I was employed at, as a graduate in a finance company and I I started, um, I suppose, going down the path of looking at uh, uh, lending money to people in in that environment. Uh, That was before the last uh, big recession in Australia. So finance companies and the finance company I was working for was beneficial finance and it used to do a lot of uh, construction and development lending. Um, I moved into a treasury role at that place, Uh, then it was taken over by a bank Uh, And then basically I was running the asset liability book uh, for the bank on uh, mainly leasing style products. And then I was moved up to Sydney and I started trading derivatives. So, uh, And the trading of derivatives were like uh, interest rate swaps, derivatives and things like that. Um, Then I went back to uni, Macquarie Uni did a master's in uh, applied finance. And then I started doing liability consulting. So I started restructuring some uh, debt for different uh, state entities. And then eventually, I got a job uh, in I think 1997 with Credit Suisse. I, um, I wanted to work for Credit Suisse first, Boston, because they had the best fixed interest uh, platform in Australia. And uh, and then I started, and, and that's when I started. Uh, creating credit portfolios for Australian investors, and uh, I suppose I spent 13 years at Credit Suisse as a an investment manager. I was one of the few people that started as an investment manager. Uh, I didn't go in because of my previous experience trading uh, derivatives. Uh, it sort of gave me a bit of an insight into how traded credit markets were, um, and yeah, when I was at Credit Suisse, I set up, you know, two or three of the funds we, we still have running now. Um, but I used to run a lot of uh, diversified fixed interest accounts for very large uh, companies and now industry funds. A lot of those companies, uh, superannuation funds went into industry funds and they, a lot of them stayed as clients. Like two of the major clients we still have are Australian Super and uh, Rest and they've been very good supporters of our uh, investments. Um, but also we've been doing you know, a lot of, uh, you know, we've got the oldest high yield fund in Australia. Uh, I think it's, it's averaged a 9% return over 20 years. Um, so pretty proud of that. But I, I suppose the thing that works for a lot of investors is I've been through lots of different uh, investment environments. So like the, you know, the big boom bust of property uh, in the 90s, uh, you know, long-term capital in the, before, you know, 98 and the, the uh, Russian crisis then, you know, then you go into the uh, obviously the dot-com boom and bust, which was the first uh, probably credit recession I went through uh, where you had a lot of telecommunication stuff bust in the US. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, I suppose the Argentinian defaults and the emerging market defaults post that, and then uh, obviously 2008, which was the biggest event. Um, um, but that was sort of so. What happened with with us and how we managed to spin out of Credit Suisse was um, I was at the last my last role at Credit Suisse was uh, the head of the uh, uh, credit investment group in the Asia Pacific region. Um, and that was something that basically we were looking at active credit investments in this region, um, but also we already had these uh, credit investment portfolios for these large industry funds and large companies as well, like Rio's and alike. like, uh, used to run their own um, uh, superannuation funds and they would come to us to manage uh, credit portfolios for them. Uh, and the credit investment group was like a, a group that was run by a guy called John John Pop in the States, who still runs the group. Uh, so I reported through to that guy and it was like being promoted to the, uh, I, I suppose, the first division of uh, of investment professionals. And so my team has sort of grown out from that. In 2008, um, uh, Basically Credit Suisse, the upper part of Credit Suisse, sold the traditional asset management business to Aberdeen. Um, they did an equity swap and it ended up selling the equity in that business a few years later. Um, that was the business that was in Australia. Um, and that actually covered a lot of the costs and anyone that's been involved in a global investment bank, they come around every five years and uh, like a sickle, they cut off the heads in, uh, uh, in global areas. Uh, outside of their their major hubs. So in 2000 and, uh, 2009, um, basically they sold Credit Suisse Asset Management to Aberdeen, and we were part of uh, just loosely associated with that. I was reporting through to New York, um, but I had to deal with all the residual overheads that were left in Australia. So I was Uh, In 2009, an unprofitable entity of a global entity. Um, So I was not long for this world, nor was my team. So uh, basically, they said, We've got a couple of ideas. We could close the business down. Um, And, you know, so our our consulting work and the funds that we had at that stage was about uh, 1.2 billion. Uh, Or we could. Uh, give the business away or we could sell the business. And I said, well, listen, I think the business has um, some legs and I think it's a good idea to sell the business. And uh, uh, and I was approached by Challenger to set up a boutique many years earlier and, and I said, well, listen, I think there might be someone interested in taking the business um, and I think we can take the business further and we can keep our association, and that's why we're able to sort of have uh, a connection to a global group, uh, my old team at the Credit Suisse uh, Credit Investment Group, but also have uh, a more established group in Australia as well. Um, so we spun out um, and it was the most terrifying time of my life uh, whether my clients would follow us into this new venture which was Bentham. And uh, Bentham is named after a guy called Jeremy Bentham, which who is a, who's a political philosopher Um, who had a lot of really interesting ideas, um, you know, about all sorts of things. A lot of lawyers would know him as a jurisprudence guy, but he was really a political philosopher, but um, he was the first guy that sort of said, well, you know, uh, access to capital is important and lending money, if you lend money at different um, interest rates, it makes a lot of sense and that's uh, how you get utility to different people, like just lending capital to, the pe- to a certain type of person doesn't work at one rate, um, so that's why we sort of came up with that. Um, but uh, in May 2010 we we spun out um, and uh, in that month I, I went round I called our investors and I think there was only one investor that decided, decided not to go with us uh, because he was funding us a month before and said we should have told him beforehand, but I couldn't tell him because it was a market transaction. So, um, um, but since then um, we've grown the business to about uh, $10 billion under management now. Um, we still have some very large institutional manager, uh, clients and industry funds, but we also have a lot of uh, uh, family office money as well. We've uh, been very successful with a number of funds in, a, in the family office space. Uh, Our Global Opportunities Fund is that, Um, but we we invest in credit, but predominantly credit outside of Australia. We'll look at investments uh, in Australia and and probably that's a good segue into what what is credit for an investor um, and how we sort of approach it, um, if that makes sense.
0: Sure, I think that uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, Firstly, congratulations on growing the business a little bit over. Eight times uh, over that ten odd years—that's uh, really a great achievement by that metric, anyway. But I, I agree with you; it's a great segue into you know what credit is and the definition of that. So I, I think it'd be uh, it'd be fantastic if you give our listeners your definition and explanation of it.
1: And I, and, I, and I apologize if uh, we come across a different. I grew out of a, an environment where there was uh, equity on one side, um, bond investors on the other side, and then credit in the middle. <laughs> so I think credit's very much a middle asset. It's it's not a, as risky as equities. And I think a lot of people uh, underestimate that historically equities were seen as a speculative, speculative investment. So traditionally uh, real investors invested in debt and they lent debt for different projects and different types of projects. So um, basically credit Most companies that you will uh, know and invest in uh, uh, have borrowed money and uh, the way the tax system works, they've they've borrowed more money um, and we lend that money. Uh, Literally, uh, we do it predominantly through public markets where you can get a a price on a daily basis, so you can buy and sell uh, debt uh, in markets and we buy and sell everything from uh, i suppose government bonds through to mortgage-backed securities through to you know senior secured loans um, to companies all around the world and what I think we do when we do that is we create an income stream um, which has uh, which can be more consistent and has less capital risk than say an equity investment, and then say compared to uh, um, just a government bond or uh, a term deposit, you get paid more, you get a higher dividend um, or a coupon in this case, but that coupon is a legal obligation for someone to pay you, like it, it doesn't have the same volatility that uh, say a dividend might have um, because the, it's not as dependent on the earnings. And I think one of the things that uh, a lot of investors, a lot of investors should know, and they probably they do know deep down in their hearts, um, the equity is sort of like the residual. Uh, sorry, the equity of a business uh, is sort of like an option on the growth of a business. Whereas uh, when you in, invest in the debt of a business, you get paid for the risk of that business, um, but you are most likely going to get your principal back. And that means that you have less volatility in your capital. And it's especially important when people get closer to retirement when they need income, um, but they just can't afford to have the volatility. They can't afford for you know, 20 or 30% of their capital to disappear and then get an income off that. And so I think that's why our style of investments are, are becoming much more important. And especially in the current environment where you have very low interest rates uh, a lot more of the investment return uh, comes from the credit spreads that are available in markets. And and there are a lot of variable uh, credit spreads. Like, we invest everywhere from uh, AAA, asset-backed securities um, to, you know, to high-yield bonds, uh, which are, you know, can be quite risky. Um, and but the, the key thing that differentiates us from, say, um, Uh, a private debt investor or someone investing in an Australian company on an Australian stock exchange, we invest in a global market, um, and usually we deal with brokers all around the world, and we create portfolios that we think uh, give the best relative value or the best uh, potential yield. in a way that an investor can sort of take it, take advantage of, as an Australian investor in particular, and we've been doing that for a long time. And, you, you know, when you put a credit portfolio together, it's, it's a much more different portfolio to that of, say, uh, an equity portfolio. Like an equity portfolio can afford to have really big winners and really big losers and can have quite large positions in each. In a credit portfolio, you really have to have, you know, much more uh, smaller sort of portfolio exposures because the uh, the big winners don't compensate you as much for the big losers.
0: Yes, unlike an equity portfolio where if you have a big winner, it can go up 10 times. Um, Correct. A bond portfolio is not going to give you that that particular security is not going to pay you anything more than they're legally obligated to pay you.
1: Yeah, that's true. But um, they do also go up in value. So I'll give you an example.
0: I think that's a good thing to talk about, because I think a lot of clients would expect when they're investing in credit, and they're essentially lending money somewhere, they're they're somewhat surprised when they have a level of market volatility, and there can be capital movements within the portfolio, because the day to day pricing of those securities or credit spreads are changing. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and where that comes into play.
1: Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, very much um, very much like a bond, uh, what, what actually happens in markets is you see risk premiums go up and down. And the same thing happens in equity markets. It's just in credit markets, they're very observable because we measure the credit risk premium because we have a legal obligation to be paid that. You know, we know what it is. We know the cash flow. So, so what you see is you'll see credit spreads go up and down.
0: So these are the difference between the buy and sell spread of the securities. I'm sorry.
1: Um, we might just do that again. Can you say that again?
0: So this is the difference. This is because of the buy-sell differences in the spread of the securities.
1: No, it's, it's more that... Um, if if I if I invest in a piece of debt today, and say it's got a spread, it's say it pays me five percent over the cash rate. Tomorrow, someone will come in and say, uh, "Well, I, I really want that five percent." So maybe it rallies in to four and a half percent. If that's a ten year duration security, well, I've just made ten uh, percent. So I. When the risk premium changes, it changes the present value of the security. Um, So just like a bond, if you see a bond rally uh, and it's got a long duration, the price goes up. Likewise, when you've got a credit investment and the credit spread tightens, the price goes up. And that price gives you a capital gain. And usually what we're trying to do is we're trying to sell things that uh, we think are going to uh, go down in price and buy things that we think are going to go up in price. It doesn't always work that way. Um, and again, uh, but it's not It's not just the yield on the asset. And we also, you know, we will turn our portfolio, we'll trade our portfolio. We won't just hold an asset until maturity. And I, I suppose when we bought something recently that's unusual for us. We bought some... Um, some Qantas debt, ten-year Qantas debt. We quite bought quite a lot for the portfolios, and it uh, pays a credit spread of you know four and a half percent over um, the swap rate or you know the the long-term cash rate. Now traditionally, that debt would trade around two hundred over, or less than two hundred over actually. Um, so that means at two percent, usually they'd lend it for a two percent premium above the, the interest rate. Um, with a 4.5% premium, we're going to get paid probably a yield of 5%. And I think there'll be a capital gain on that security of maybe uh, you know a 2%, a 2% change in the discount value, which means you'll probably get a capital gain of 20%. So you get a running yield of 5%, capital gain of 20%. I, I, these are not um, bad performing assets, if, if you get my drift. Um, especially if, you, if you've if you got a good manager. And if you look at our traditional returns, like our high-yield fund I think does better than equities, you know, over a long, long-term horizon with less volatility. It's just not in a lot of investors' portfolios. They just don't know the asset. And to be honest, Australia is not known to have a lot of uh, investors that have invested well in high-yield um, as an asset. Um, they just haven't had the experience dealing with it. Um, Mainly because I think we're much more of a risky, uh, you know, uh, equity-seeking asset. In more traditional markets, you find in the U.S., like uh, most private investors will have an exposure to high yield. They'll have an exposure to certain other assets as well, and that's how you, you know, when you guys as financial planners put portfolios together, you know, having those diversified exposures um, means you get a Better investment universe, and general, generally speaking, the bigger the investment universe, the better the result will be. And by result, it could be the the volatility of the portfolio will be less, and the potential return might be higher.
0: Richard, I think the skill of a manager in your position is paramount in being able to analyze a the risk of a any capital erosion and b uh, pricing the risk appropriately. Can you use that Qantas example, which I think is quite topical, given the market that we're in, um, talk us through the sort of analysis research process you go through to formulate that opinion to add it in the way you have? Yeah, sure,
1: sure. I, like, to be honest, we've probably spent more time shorting Qantas than buying Qantas historically, um, because we thought airlines were not a, a, not a great business. Um, mainly because they had a lot of uh, susceptibility uh, to uh, energy prices. Um, now Qantas, and it, there's an example of a very bad performing bond in Australia, uh, the Virgin Bond, uh, basically when um, defaulted. So why, why did we buy Qantas? Well Qantas, Qantas is a slightly different entity um, and we had two analysts that sat down with the, uh, the company treasurer. Um, we did our comparisons around the world, and then we looked at the cost structure for Qantas. Qantas has improved their cost structure, and just opening up the domestic market means that Qantas becomes profitable again, uh, which is pretty interesting. So it's we, um, we see this as a COVID recovery trade. Like it's not a... I, my, my thing is not to stay invested in Uh, entities that have been hurt by COVID once they recover. So this is a trade we think, you know, in a year's time, you know, come back and ask me in a year's time, did that trade work? Um, In a year's time, I think Qantas will be flying, um, maybe even uh, internationally. Um, The profitability, they've actually restructured some of their cost structure. Um, You know, never let any crisis go, Without uh, getting some benefit out of it, and I'm sure they've restructured their cost structure a little bit. The fact that Virgin's been knocked out and restructured under Bain, um, a, a private equity company in the states, has probably helped the structure as well. So uh, they've taken costs out of their business, and that you know we think they'll re they'll they'll start flying soon and they'll be profitable. Um, again, I, I don't think it's the best example. Like you know, with, there's other adva- examples where we've been. Uh, we've got some uh, companies that do some of the research around uh, some of this uh, virus sort of stuff in the US. Um, you know, basically laboratory suppliers and things like that, they've done exceptionally well, they're quite profitable. There's a lot of businesses that have been interrupted by, um, uh, by the COVID events. Uh, and we think some of those are, are businesses that will do very well and there's been a lot of forbearance shown by a lot of companies, and we think that's also something that's that's going to do quite well. Um,
0: so Richard, that that leads us, I guess, to a, a natural question about where you think we are in the cycle. And there's been a very strong uh, recovery in markets that some may argue the fundamental economics don't uh, justify at the moment, perhaps. But that that you know, when we see we've seen the vaccine start to be rolled out around the world and talk about March in Australia. Yeah. Where do you see current markets and how they're positioned?
1: Yeah, it's funny, actually, because this has been a, a really interesting one. This is probably the, this is a very quick recession. Um, if you go back in history, the Spanish flu was a very quick recession in the US. It was the second fastest recession um and when, when you think about it sort of makes a little bit of sense because you have these companies that are turned off like a light switch they're turned off because government has actually decided that you know we've got to close activity down now when government decides you open up activity you turn the light switch back on um so i so I think that's why people uh, believe this is going to be a big recovery I think There's two scenarios we see, two major scenarios that people are playing right now. A Japanese scenario where you have zombie companies, um, uh, and that's a less positive scenario, to be honest, uh, for equity markets, because zombie companies don't uh, produce a lot of profit growth. Um, It's actually perversely quite, um, quite good for credit because a lot of companies don't default. They just keep on going on paying their coupons Uh, they just don't pay a lot of dividends and that's literally what you saw in Japan like you know Japan had this thing very low interest rates very low inflation um, and that was a a, a bad environment Um, so that in that environment uh, credit did quite well um, bonds didn't do much uh, equities did disastrously for 10 years Um, I don't necessarily think that's a lot of people painting that as a a scenario that we're going into. I don't necessarily think we're going into that scenario. I think we could be going into something like the 1920s where we've got a very high kicking recovery here where a lot of people um, have actually saved a lot during this COVID shutdown. And it perversely, um, you know, it hasn't been a bad recession for a lot of people. Like half the economy has actually done quite well out of this, especially technology. Um, so, yeah, I think I think we could be in a situation where uh, you see a, a big upkeep in activity because we've had a huge amount of stimulus and the stimulus that we've had is like, is enormous, you know, the fiscal stimulus uh, in most developed countries is, you know, north of uh, 6% fiscal stimulus and then another, you know, financial support of another you know six or eight percent of gdp like these are huge numbers um so I, I actually think you know we're going to recover through this uh should the vaccine be uh efficient um and there are a number of vaccines and it's not just one vaccine and we've learned how to deal with it like right now you know we're all sensitive um i think australia is less you know we're less sensitive to it now but you know, Europe has been pretty open during their, during their summer. Now they're going into a virus se- season. Um, but a lot of the uh, economy is still functioning. So I think once you've got the vaccines uh, uh, utilized, uh, especially in developed markets, I think developed markets will do quite well. A lot of these uh, businesses that have been uh, performing poorly uh, will actually do a lot better um and that's why the recession is not going to be as bad and also we we don't have as many people unemployed um, as in the 2008 recession and activity is a lot stronger uh coming out of this than in 2008 so I, I think uh you know we could do a little bit better but it will come with other risks if you know what i mean
0: and richard where do you see inflation in this i think uh many people that's have- a- wondered since 2008 and this sort of modern monetary theory uh, where inflation is if you give us your view and and where that may may eventuate and or what your view on interest rates are going forward
1: yeah so inflation has been lower than expected for a long time since 2008 and what we've been in we haven't been in an inflation cycle we've been in a, a disinflation cycle that's mean that means we've been in a low inflation Um, And again, uh, you know, having said that, we still had inflation, right? Um, I think post this, this potential, and one of the reasons for that uh, low inflation is you had an an output gap, uh, you know, capacity that wasn't being utilised, so, you know, you don't have any pricing power in that sort of environment. And on top of that, you had globalisation, and globalisation basically led to low cost labor being utilized all around the world now there's a possibility that we could be going out of that environment right now and we're definitely not pricing a lot of inflation now when we don't price a lot of inflation and interest rates are really low um, even though central banks will say that they're going to be on the sidelines uh, you know there's some potential for inflation to come back now what we could be seeing is a change from the structural lower inflation that we've had historically, uh, or sorry, recently in the last 20 years, uh, we've had the structural change with a step down in inflation as central banks have started to target inflation. Now, central banks are now taking off those targets for inflation, they're allowing inflation to float a lot more. Um, And the reason we had those targets for inflation was because um, governments, it was to put some fiscal discipline around Governments. Now the reason we want to put fiscal discipline is it goes back to that adage that uh, Milton Freeman has that monetary, you know, inflation is usually a monetary cause. Now what we've seen is we've seen a lot of government spending, a lot of which has gone into saving um, and when we come out of this I think you're going to see a lot of activity but you've seen a lot of uh, disruption in supply chains. So I I think there's some potential for, uh, like we're gonna have volatility in GDP, I think we'll get some volatility in prices as well. And one of the reasons is you're seeing a reversal of that globalization and where supply chains have been interrupted. Maybe you're not looking for the cheapest price, maybe you're looking for the price that means your supply chain is gonna be assured. And also we're having these tariff wars, um, which are going to lead to price, some price inflation as well. So I think inflation will surprise on the upside, not the downside. Is it gonna be hugely higher? I'm not sure, but it it will definitely be some, there will definitely be some volatility in it. Now, that's why we would actually say you probably wanna have more, you wanna have an exposure to say floating rate credit, where you're not gonna be uh, driven by bond prices that may go up a bit um, and bond prices, you know, 10 year bonds sitting below 1% is unusual in any state. It's the lowest that I've seen in my career. Um, it's, it's popped up a little bit, you know, maybe got down into the 60 basis points sort of range, but if you've got inflation running at two, two and a half percent, um, you know, interest rates uh, shouldn't be where they are now. Great.
0: So, what, Richard? What sort of returns would you think it's reasonable for an investor in the type of funds that you're exposing clients to to have an expectation over the next medium term, call it five years?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, it depends on which fund. Like you know, we have funds which are, uh, basically have the potential return of say, you know, two and a half, three percent, and we have funds that have the potential return of you know, 7%, depends how much risk you're taking. Like our, uh, if I look at our our general fund stats, I look at the yield on our funds and we have, uh, you know, our, our, our bank, our asset back securities fund is yielding, you know, two and a quarter percent. A global income fund is yielding four and a half percent. I think that'll do more than four and a half, probably do five, maybe six. Uh, A global opportunities is yielding 5.2. I think that'll probably do seven. Um, You know, again, they all yield differently depending on the outlook, Um, but it also depends what happens with interest rates. Like some of these have no interest rate risk and some have interest rate risk. Like our high yield fund, you know, is uh, currently yielding, you know, 5.15%. You know, historically, uh, over the last 20 years to the end of September, uh, it yielded 9.1%. Oh, sorry, returns 9.1%. That's over 20 years, right? Um, That's a pretty amazing sort of return, I think, um, for an asset that's less risky than um, equities. Uh, Equities hasn't done that.
0: I agree. Richard, thank you very much. Uh, I think that's a fantastic position to uh, leave uh, this episode. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much for it. Um, Thank you for joining us at Inside the Road.
1: No worries. And uh, listen, encourage anyone to sort of reach out and have a look at our website, have a look at what we do. Uh, Credit's not an investment. They're probably in right now or they don't know much about. Uh, Suffice to say, it's the bigger market in the world um and there's lots of investments and the thing about uh credit is it can provide that income with less capital volatility and more security around the capital um and i think that's an interesting thing for people to have especially in retirement and when they're constructing their portfolios we definitely have a lot of institutional investors and family offices, and uh, you know we'd like to include your clients in that as well
0: thanks for your time richard Okay,
1: cheers for that. And thank you and thank you, clients. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect
0: with David by visiting codacapital.com.